Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. Today I continue my journey through the decades as I talk to you all about the 1980s today. Now, I love lots of films from the whole of this decade. There's so many I could have picked. I said this for the 70s episode, but this one particularly, we're getting closer and closer to the ones that I knew and loved when I was growing up. So these ones are ones that I've discovered over the years and I just love them to pieces and I cannot wait to share with you my top five. But before we do that, remember to keep up with our social medias on Instagram, Twitter and the like. You'll be able to get involved with all of our polls, questions, quizzes, all that sort of stuff and look at all our visual content which accompanies these podcasts to really give you a feel of what I'm talking about really and just to show you what we're talking about because the visuals are just as important as me talking away like this. So let's get started with this 1980s episode. In at number five we have a film which is going to break sort of the tradition of these episodes really because whilst I don't ignore cinema from non-English speaking countries I haven't done a lot of that recently. I, I did include a couple of entries in our 1920s episode uh, looking at the likes of Man with a Movie Camera which was a Russian film uh, and we looked at some German films as well in the early days of cinema itself but largely the ones that I've been doing in these previous episodes have been English language based but this is not the case for this pick that I've chosen for you at my number five pick. It was a film released in 1988 directed by Giuseppe Tornetto. I really hope I've said his name correctly. That is a film that really expresses the true joy of cinema and it's a really heartfelt warming story and I, I think anyone who is interested in studying film or learning about film in any capacity this one particularly is very interesting it's an Italian film I don't often look at Italian films but this one particularly it's heralded as quite a important film and quite a I don't know, well-respected film in some in a lot of ways and this film I'm talking about is a story of cinema itself why we love the movies and that film is Cinema Paradiso. Now you know whilst a lot of films nowadays were and also especially in the 70s as well started looking back on cinema history and using it as a method of storytelling to frame their narratives and look at cinema history as it's gone by in the past. This one really uses the idea of cinema and takes it to another level where it really examines the human relationship with the cinema experience and it's very all wrapped up together it's a drama essentially cinema paradiso but the, at the heart of it because it's called cinema paradiso it is about this cinema called the cinema paradiso in italy in this small little italian town and it really is just such a lovely well shot piece of cinema it doesn't look particularly 80s like and it's not the sort of film that you would think initially oh wow that's you know 80s classic right there you'd think it was much more of a potentially a 70s or a 90s film possibly from a, like a, a dramatic perspective but it is the late 80s there's a bit of cut it's in color it's bright it's bold it's got the nice landscapes and i just think it's such a heartwarming story so just to give you a breakdown it follows the character of salvatore de vita uh, i believe he's referred to as toto throughout the majority of the film uh, nothing to do with the wizard of oz but let, we'll leave that for now and it follows his life from being a young boy growing up into a grown man and the character has become a film director and he's become successful and he's left the country left his hometown gone further afield to explore better things 
we see him as an older man at the beginning of the film and it's one of those classic examples where the story is details of it are revealed as we go through the film we don't all we see everything at first sight we don't go from the childhood aspect of it all all the way up to the adult man we start off with this grown-up man and he gets called back for a funeral of a dear friend of his called alfredo who's a projectionist at the cinema paradiso and of course we don't have a clue who alfredo is at the beginning of this film so naturally the film takes us back in time and we take a look at the experiences and how this man as a child grows up and really begins to love the movies essentially and I can't really spoil it much more for you because you need to watch it to experience the true drama of it all. The long end of it is that Alfredo thinks that Salvatore belongs and is destined to be moving on to greater things. And I think that he he just sends him away and says, you know, don't come back here. Even if he's in ill health, don't come back. He, want, he makes him leave. And the only time he comes back is for his funeral. And the the story is a relationship of a boy and his mentor as it were learning to love film and i don't think we can really replicate that in terms of an english language film truly cinema paradiso is a unique piece of cinema it's a life story it goes through the motions as looking at salvatore as a young boy learning how to run a projectionist room and learning how to run the cinema that goes into like a new renaissance then it, it's a very small quaint little place and it's run by a church and of course in the story the church and the clergy in this society they control all that is sin in the film a little bit like in the early days of cinema in terms of the 1950s because i think this is around the 1950s ish 40s where we see kissing scenes cut out of the film so for instance there's a lovely scene where we get a member of the clergy sat down in front of a film on his own in the cinema watching a film thinking of all the things you know is this appropriate for our community is it appropriate for all of our loving patrons that are in the church you know and anything that was seen as too scandalous would be cut and it would be censored a little bit like how they'd censor things uh, that were a bit too racy in the hollywood production code but obviously this was done fairly independently to some degree but the thing with this film is you see them all these kissing scenes they're too scandalous even though they're really not as racy as you know some scenes that we'd have in films of the 80s itself and also later and into today's era of film they are cut because kissing is seen as a bit scandalous and some of the content was seen as being a bit on the note too on the nose shall we say for a god-fearing community who you know we need to promote good decent honest family values so they didn't want too much scandalous uh, stuff going on in those that leads to one of my favorite moments in the film because the film we we go back and forth between the present day mostly sticking in the past looking at this young boy and his love for cinema and the rise and fall of a cinema which is at the, like the center of a community even when it's raining and there's been a fire that's damaged the cinema we see this community pulling together to bring the cinema back and it's always coming back it does i won't spoil the ending too much but there's a very deep felt sort of sadness shall we say for the cinema when we get back to the present day towards the end of the film but then there's the lovely scene which is my favorite scene in the film it's the last scene the kisses sequence where like i said all the kisses and those sequences that have been cut from films that were shown in the cinema back in its heyday they're all kept on a reel it was all these sequences cut together and we see it's put to music and it's a beautiful and you get to see 
the older Salvatore sat down on his own watching this compilation of clips of kisses and romance and it reminds him a little bit of what was and why he fell in love with the cinema the intrigue of the cutting room the intrigue of seeing how things were put together and, and seeing the forbidden shall we say because in the end of the day cinema lots of people nowadays i don't think you get away with it so so often but like lots of people i think of a certain generation could probably relate to sneaking into a film that was a bit above your age rating and just seeing something that you fell in love with for the first time because you it was a guilty pleasure as it were because you weren't supposed to but at the same time you wanted to this is sort of a similar equivalent in this case but obviously a little bit more tame because all they're doing is kissing in these sequences and it's just a great love letter to the cinema experience really the shared experience you get to see these lovely bits of audiences interacting with each other with the film there's a really nice sequence where there's an old couple in the present day at the uh, the funeral of Alfredo they're there and you see them quite frequently throughout the flashbacks in the younger days it's just a, such a nice thing to say look we're still here and we remember what you did we remember the cinema and I think it's a great film to watch read today to appreciate even though yes it's got subtitles for anyone who doesn't speak Italian or understand Italian but I think genuinely is a good film it's really heartwarming so I can't express that too much and there's some good shots in there as well but quickly moving on to my fourth pick into this list we're into classic 80s territory now and where we're going we don't need roads now whilst that is said at the end of this film and it that applies more to the second of the trilogy I am talking about the first in the trilogy of films of Back to the Future, released in 1985, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Completely different to Cinema Paradiso, but a genuinely fun film from start to finish. This is a film about time travel, just to give you a quick lowdown. For anyone who hasn't seen Back to the Future, it's a genuine popcorn classic. So I would highly encourage you to go and watch this if you haven't already. It's not highly acclaimed as such, but it's one that's very much a popular piece of culture then shall we say for anyone who loves the movies and a bit of fun set in the 80s stars michael j fox as the main character marty mcfly christopher lloyd as dr emmett brown his best friend and confidant and sort of like a father figure to him and then leah thompson playing michael j fox's mother lorraine baines later mcfly and crispin glover as george mcfly the parents of marty which they become more of a pivotal point in the film as we go through it you see them at the beginning all done up in this like aged makeup i think the makeup department on this was so good like i genuinely think they did a really good job at aging leah thompson up because leah thompson is a very attractive young woman when you see her in the younger sections when we travel back in time to the 1950s but like the makeup is so decently done it looks really realistic and even for 80s standards it's pretty good and then on top of that, you get the same effect with the likes of Crispin Glover's George McFly, who has the same treatment done to him, and the main villain of the piece, played by Thomas F. Wilson, the character of Biff Tannen. So this film, though, is a genuine piece of fun. We have Marty McFly and his friend Dr. Emmett Brown performs this experiment in this big car park for a shopping complex. It's completely empty, it's dark, abandoned, no one there. And he unveils the DeLorean. And that's one of my high points of this. The 
time traveling car itself which comes out in like a field of dry ice as it were smoke and fog reverses out of this big massive lorry he remote controls the car and makes it time travel with his dog einstein inside it and that's how we get introduced to this plot device it's a very quirky thing because a delorean is a very 80s car it's very you know it's got wing like doors that go up and down very much like bird wings but it's very cool very cool car and even today it looks timeless i'd like to own a delorean to be quite frank it'd be quite a fun car to have time traveling as well but you know the actual car design is great and obviously it's modified to time travel everything goes wrong doc brown has taken some plutonium from a group of people they don't let him get away with it so they go after him they try chasing him he gets shot in the beginning it's not a spoiler he gets shot in the beginning and he's lying dead on the floor and you think oh no marty's just there with his video camera which he's been videoing this entire scenario the entire time and he makes it into the DeLorean. and 88 miles per hour is what sets the time circuits makes them able to travel in time really essentially that's the optimum speed to travel back in time and the time little machine setting was set to 1955 ironically when doc brown first came up with the idea for the flux capacitor that lovely little light that's in the back of the delorean and marty travels back in time to the 1950s so 1955 specifically and this whole film came out as an idea of what would you do if you met your parents would you like them would you think they were cool would you get on with them it would be interesting to know what somebody's parents were like and in turn we get this very trippy weird adventure where michael j fox interacts with his younger parents which we've just seen as older people much more slightly more aged up characters and we get to see them in their young heyday at high school and at the same time we also get to meet a younger version of dr emmett brown so christopher lloyd's character who really apart from the length of his hair doesn't really look much different but hey ho the story itself you know he goes back in time he kind of prevents his parents from meeting and he ends up being in the place of where his father met his mother and there's a bit of a weird thing here this is why originally when it was going around the studios disney didn't want to take this because of the strange allusion to potential incest because of the fact that leah thompson was interested in her own son essentially even though she didn't know that but in the plot it looks like that way so they wouldn't touch it but eventually it was taken up uh, executive produced by steven spielberg the score for this is great it's really magical and fun it's got steven spielberg sort of magic written all over it from his heyday but really bob zemeckis and bob gale as a team really brought this to life but yeah he goes back in time he has to fix his parents make them meet so he doesn't get erased from existence i'll let you just watch the film because it's really just a good enjoyment fun-filled trip all the way through things that i would like to point out about this film the first trip back in time for marty when he hits 88 miles per hour he crashes through this barn and he looks like an alien from a comic that this kid's wearing in this farmyard place that used to be there in the 1950s before the whole place got turned into a a shopping center and a big car park Uh, that's quite funny i love the spotting the differences between the two the hill valley where it's set and 1955 and 1985 because you get to see the clock tower which becomes a pivotal part of the film you get to see all these bits which are on the universal backlot which look truly amazing and magical like a great thing to watch overall the opening sequence i would say is my next sort of big favorite i like the time the moment when marty goes back in time it's exciting it's great 
and you know you think oh we're in a different place now this is a time travel film and the lightning strike at the end to help him get back home plus the school dance scene those two are quite good they're sort of paired with me sort of tied together the school dance scene where Marty McFly plays Johnny B. Good to a 1950s crowd of kids who have no idea who Chuck Berry is yet. <laughs> and there's a little joke saying that Marty McFly helped inspire Chuck Berry, or at least his brother, tell Chuck Berry about this new sound that he was looking for. And it really just, you know, it's a bit of fun. But ultimately, my favourite piece of the film is the opening sequence where we have this big, long tracking shot. We go across all these clocks, slowly, slowly. All the credits are coming up on screen. There's no music. There's a little bit of a news report about missing plutonium, which we'll learn about later, why that's gone missing. And then we build up to Marty turning up the sound on this big amplifier and he strums a guitar and it knocks him right back. And then we go straight into The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News, which follows Marty's journey in this lovely fluid landscape going, I think it was filmed in Los Angeles, in and around Los Angeles as well, outside of the back lot of Universal, just skateboarding around on the back of trucks and cars and his whole journey, waving at people in a gym class, riding around until he gets to school. It's just with that song, Huey Lewis and the News did two songs for this. So Power of Love, which is the one you know of the most for Back to the Future. But then there's Back in Time as well, which is used slightly on a radio towards the end of the film, as well as the credits. Both brilliant songs overall. And I mentioned Huey Lewis from and Huey Lewis and the News because they actually make a little appearance, specifically Huey Lewis, the lead singer of that band. He makes an appearance at the, right at the beginning because Marty does like this school talent show thing battle of the bands and they're playing a version of the power of love and huey lewis is somebody in the school one of the teachers and he's got a megaphone and he delivers a line like he's just i'm sorry kids but you're too damn loud and <laughs> i genuinely just think it's it's really funny because it's his song and you know it's a little wink i didn't realize it was huey lewis for a long time to be honest but at the same time it's a really fun little nugget in there but yeah time travel 1980s nostalgia the DeLorean itself and brilliant characters from start to finish really there's comedy there's romance there's slightly weird stuff in the middle uh, and a great villain in Biff Tannen who then will evolve into more of a villain as we get on into the trilogy but yeah Back to the Future from 1985 is one of my top highlights from the 80s. In at number three we come to a film which is a sequel to a groundbreaking first film which came out in 1979. It's a great sequel, this. I sometimes enjoy this sequel much more than the original. The original I absolutely respect and love, but this one is genuinely amazing. It's directed by James Cameron, released in 1986. James Cameron seemed to have a thing for sequels. I'm going to put it out there now. I think that James Cameron... I don't know what Avatar 2 is going to be like. I'm a little bit sceptical. I don't really care, to be honest, because I didn't get the hype the first time. But Avatar 2 might be good, because Terminator 2 Judgment Day, I prefer that to the original. Aliens, which is my number three pick on this list, in my opinion, is the better of all the sequels. Obviously, it's not a contested opinion that Aliens is a good film. It's not a contested opinion that it's better than 3 and 4. But at the same time... I, don't, I think James Cameron really should just stick to directing the second film in an installment of things, or at least he should have done back in the day <laughs> before trying to do bigger and better things. But I think this is genuinely a James Cameron film that I really love, and I think it's got lots of good moments in there. It's got the action. It's got some of the good 
like essence of the original film so alien released in the set at the end of the 70s but this film i think builds on it adds to it and is genuinely such an enjoyable film overall for me in terms of a sci-fi perspective it stars sigourney weaver as ellen ripley our lead heroine who quite frankly is the best female hero that we've had in years i don't care about lara croft this is much better <laughs> uh, sigourney weaver does a brilliant job in this again she's frozen in hypersleep with her cat which we've seen in the previous film if you haven't seen alien there's spoilers ahead the whole crew apart from her are dead so she survived the previous attack with the alien she's in hypersleep she's been in stasis for 57 years and then she gets awoken and found by a traveling ship from the company that run the original mission that she worked for in the first film so the Wayland corporation and she gets sent back to a hospital she's there she's all sort of a little bit discombobulated and we got this mission that comes up hears about it and she thinks it's a bad idea so it's a trip back to lv426 where they originally found the alien eggs of the xenomorphs so she naturally thinks this is a bad idea and apparently that the planet has been colonized in the time that she's been asleep and something's gone wrong with the colony so they send a group of like space marines i think they're at they are into this mission to discover what's going on if there are any problems turns out the aliens have ravaged the colony there's barely anyone there anymore and we get introduced to corporal Dwayne hicks who's like our our second lead i I think this is the 80s does a lot of reversal of the gender roles in this. I'm not saying the 80s was a perfect era, but let's just say in this film, Ellen Ripley is the lead, even though the guys don't listen to her half the time because they think she's mad. I do think that she is the lead in this. She definitely is. Hicks is there thinking he's in charge, but at the same time, the dynamic dictates that he is a little bit lesser than her, shall we say. But yeah, he's played by the brilliant Michael Bine he and Ripley kind of have something going on kind of don't it's it's a strange relationship James Cameron loves Michael Bine because I'm pretty sure he's in Terminator 1 I want to say possibly the original Terminator so he just has a thing for him and they sort of have an enduring romance kind of friendship kind of thing Bishop is another great character I'd like to highlight as well played by Lance Henriksen he's an android and essentially it is quite helpful in a lot of ways not as deceitful as the android that we got in the first film in the first alien film a little bit more helpful towards the end and then the other character i'd like to highlight as well is a girl called newt a girl who is from the colony that is based on lv426 and she's a young girl that is essentially orphaned at the beginning of the film depending on which version of the film you watch because there is a special edition of this film and i <sighs> I would say watch the theatrical cut first, but then watch the special edition to see what the differences are. But I think the special edition for me of Aliens, if you do get a copy of it, it does add a lot more and it makes the film even better. But at the same time, the theatrical version works just as well. It's just there's a lot more emotional impact. Ripley becomes more of a sort of mother figure in this one rather than just another member of the crew and she's just the last woman standing this one is very she becomes very maternal because at the beginning of the film like she had a daughter when she left but her daughter's grown up and died in the time that she's been in stasis and she's missed all those firsts and missed being there as a mother so she kind of takes this girl newt under her wing and she thinks you know you you're going to be in my care i'm going to look after you and i think it's such an enduring relationship i prefer the relationship between newt and ripley than i do 
Ripley and Hicks because, you know, it's a sci-fi. I don't want to see too much romance in a sci-fi film. I want to stick with the science fiction. So at the end of the day, that's what I'm in it for. And, you know, great action sequences. The thing I would note as well, the end sequence where Ripley has a giant armor on and she's fully weaponized and she's ready to fight the queen xenomorph and it's just a brilliant film from start to finish high octane action still all the original horror and suspense from the first one but incorporated in a slightly different way with ripley very firmly set at the middle of this film she is the heroine of this she is the hero she is the one that makes you want to stay on and watch it and then there's a cute cat at the beginning of it like what more can you ask for Aliens 1986, James Cameron film, number three. In at number two. Number two is an interesting one because I we're in the 80s, it's a very colourful era, and I think with this one, we go back to black and white. We go to a raw emotional experience, and it's a film from 1980, directed by David Lynch, the master of surrealism in cinema and also TV, depending on what you want, Twin Peaks fans out there. But I would say this one is probably his most true and honest film ever. It's one of only about two films, I would say, that is relatively normal. I put normal in inverted quotes. Uh, But this film stars Anthony Hopkins as a character called Frederick Treves, a surgeon at a London hospital. This is all based in the Victorian era, so the late 19th century. And it's all based around a man called Joseph Merrick, or as the film refers to him as, John Merrick, who is known also as the Elephant Man. And The Elephant Man is my number two pick for the 1980s. It's a very emotional film. I I can't tell you how much that this film really hits a punch. It's become one of my favourite David Lynch films, not because it's a David Lynch film, but just because it is a really good film. It's emotional. It's very well shot. The cinematography on this is beautiful. They've done a 4K restoration of this with the Studio Canal team, I want to say, or Criterion, and they produced a lovely beautiful 4k restoration of this film just last year i think and it was really lovely to watch the picture is so crisp the sound is amazing sound design for david lynch in general is an amazing thing to watch but i would say that this is ultimately the most honest and true film that david lynch has ever done he he's done some weird stuff in his time but this one is probably my favorite of his because it's not the way he usually does films. There's a little bit of fantasy at the beginning and a little bit throughout where we see visions of elephants stamping onto a woman and a woman being in fear of her life and where we get the mother of John Merrick. Uh, We sort of learn that it's her throughout the film, but we learn that she's uh, potentially... uh, David Lynch and the screenwriter, they're alluding to the fact that potentially the reason why John Hurt's character... So John Hurt does a fabulous job in this film... He's a severely deformed man who, and this is obviously a story based on a real life person, but these, this film is based mainly on another piece of source material, a book about the elephant man himself. It's not based on 100%. There's a few little differences here and there, but there's a few that are quite, you know, they match up to the real life events. Uh, Like I said, it's led by Anthony Hopkins, who plays a surgeon at the London hospital. He finds john merrick in the care of this what i say care not exactly care he finds him in this freak show traveling freak show which is led by uh, the character mr bites played by freddie jones evil ringmaster of kinds he runs this freak show and john merrick the elephant man is in this freak show and he's there basically to horrify people and shock people because it's set in the victorian times so anything that was mildly different would shock and amaze people but also frighten them at the same time 
and people got a kick out of it. And that's essentially the so the essence of what happened to the elephant man himself, the real elephant man, Joseph Merrick. But this film really is an emotional charge. We see the dream sequences, which are kind of Lynchian, but at the same time, we don't think that John Merrick can speak at first. Anthony Hopkins takes him into the hospital, into this private wing, and then eventually he gets him to talk a bit more. He gets him to dress a little bit better as well, and he gets integrated into society. But there's a lovely, really harsh, really cold moment, really, when you realise that although Anthony Hopkins is um, Frederick Treves, brings him in and ends up putting him on display to like high society, essentially. People in high societies were, you know, coming to visit John Merrick in his new home that he's been given and fixed up with in a much more slightly higher class version of the freak show. It's a new way of looking at him. But, you know, people are just doing it for the shock value. And that's kind of sad and very tragic. And eventually, the film, it's no spoiler, really, that because it follows him up until his death. And we see him die, and it's quite, you know, he dies at peace in a way. But there's a few moments I'd like to point out from The Elephant Man itself. I mentioned Freddie Jones as Mr. Bites, the evil ringmaster. He is the contributor of one of the most horrible sequences I've ever had to watch. So spoilers ahead, but there's a scene where John Merrick is in his little house, little place, little little room apartment, and he's all fixed up, and he's it's all so genteel, and he feels so thankful to everyone for giving him clothes and a home and getting him away from the circus and the freak show. But then Mr. Bites finds out where he is. There's a dishonest caretaker as well. I think Jim, I think his name is, who lets people in and then a big crowd of people come in and swamp him and because he's so top heavy because his head is such a top heavy thing you have to be careful with his head because otherwise if he lay down properly he would die and it's really horrible people were pouring it's the music of it it's a circus kind of music and he's twisted around in a most graphic horrifying way and you know they're all pushing him and there's a big load of people being pushed into him that don't want to be because they're terrified of what he looks like and then eventually this leads to john merrick being taken away by bites again before he makes it back to london that leads to the other iconic line of i am not an animal i am a human being as he shouts to a big crowd of people who crowd around him thinking oh what that who who is he what why does he look so strange kind of thing even though he's tried to hide his identity once he flees Bites's company from the freak show once more but those are two really horrifying horrible moments but also emotional moments in the film and then the next bit that I really like as well obviously there's the card the um cardboard little church so he sat in his room and he can see this lovely cathedral and he makes a cathedral out of this little like matchsticks I want to say and card and it's a beautiful little little model that he makes and it's a real thing that genuinely was made by the real elephant man but he takes so much pride in it and it was it's such a heartwarming lovely moment in the film it genuinely brings a tear to my eye every time i watch it but then after that as well the other bit that gets me emotionally as well is the scene where he goes to the theater for the first time because he's been introduced previously to a character played by anne bancroft uh, called mrs kendall uh, she's an actress performer someone involved in the arts and she comes along and John Merrick goes, I've never been to the theatre. And he goes to the theatre, he sits in the royal box, and there's a lovely moment where she stands on stage, Anne Bancroft, and says, I'd like to dedicate this performance to a very special guest, and it's uh, to Mr. John Merrick. And it's such a lovely moment, because he's he loved the theatre, he says he loves the theatre, but he's never actually been. He's heard about it and read about it, but never been. And it's such a... And everyone stands up and gives a round of applause, and that ultimately sums up my love for the elephant man and the black and white cinematography 
it just sort of encapsulates everything. Absolutely perfect film from start to finish. But you think, why is that not your number one pick? Well, I will tell you why it's not my number one pick. Because my number one pick for the 1980s is directed by, I said this in the 70s episode, but one of my favourite directors, Sir Alan Parker. This was released in 1980 as well. And it's a musical-based film, but not your average musical film. It's There's a few bits of singing and dancing spontaneously, but there's quite a lot of gritty realism in this film, and he prided himself, Alan Parker, on this feat of gritty realism with a musical spin. And he was a British director in New York City. And in case any of you don't know what I'm on about, the film that I am talking to you about is the 1980 film Fame. Now, like I just said, it's set in New York City. It follows a bunch of young teenagers in a performing arts school in New York City who basically they want to be famous. That's the aim of the game. And it's such a great young cast, some of which would go on to be in the 1980s TV show a couple of years later. So starting in, I believe, 1982, it started. And so that would be Lee Curry who played Bruno Martelli, who's a music student, the likes of Gene Anthony Ray, who played Leroy Johnson, who was a dance student, and Mr. Shirovsky, the music teacher, played by Albert Haig. He appears in the TV series as well. And we also see Debbie Allen for the first time. She, Debbie Allen makes a very tiny appearance in this film as a dance teacher assistant in the audition process of the film. She's never seen again, but her character is called Lydia in the credits. And then she gets brought back for the TV series. Now, I just want to point out, whilst the TV series wasn't as grim and dark and sort of gritty as Alan Park would have liked, it's a very sanitised view of his film in a serialised format. I think the TV show is great. I think it's just great fun. It was the glee of its day. It genuinely had some great moments. I haven't seen all of it. I've only seen two seasons of it because that's all I have access to in the UK at the moment. But I've seen a few clips from the later seasons, which I've found online, but... The film itself is where the heart started and, you know, other co-stars include Irene Cara, who people might know for Flashdance, another 1980 classic, so 1983, who sung What a Feeling, the title song from that film. I talk about grittiness in fame. The character of Lisa Monroe potentially, she tries to commit suicide, but she, I'll leave you to find out what happens with that on the New York subway. We've got Paul McCrane, who plays a character called Montgomery McNeil who is exploring his sexual well he is gay and he it's about him being okay and open with other people about his sexuality even though at the time contextually he was going to see a therapist about his homosexuality and then gene anthony ray he's got because he's illiterate and comes from a, a lower class background somewhere in the bronx and he doesn't think that reading writing all the academic stuff is appropriate for what he wants to do he just wants to do dancing and there's a struggle between him and his English teacher, Miss Sherwood, who we explore more of that in the TV series a little bit more as well, but that's explored in this as well. So we've got topics of homosexuality, illiteracy, and you know, education and the importance of education, how gritty the business can be and how dark and dingy life can be in New York City. You don't just become a performer for nothing. And the film is broken down into five sections and that's the auditions where you see everybody audition the freshman year sophomore year junior year and senior year now freshman year is sort of them sort of getting to grips with things we get to meet them as characters we briefly send them in the auditions we get a feeling of what fame is going to be with this monologue from montgomery and then we slowly see all the other auditions take place sophomore year we get to i think each year is broken down into different sort of either issues or themes or storylines so sophomore year, we focus on the homosexuality 
and we also get to see the title song Fame being taken into. It's sung by Irene Cara, who plays a character called Coco Hernandez in this. And she's the, like, I can sing, I can dance, I can act, I can do everything. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's on a playback. It, fun little fact for you, Donna Summer's Hot Stuff was played instead of Fame because they hadn't actually finished the music at this point. So when you see them all dancing, Hot Stuff was played in the background on location. So they had to dance to a completely different track, but of a similar beat. So... Yeah, if you notice, if you play Donna Summer's Hot Stuff, then you will see the tempo is very much the same, and you'll see what they were actually dancing to in the in this street sequence, which is a highlight for me, where they climb up on top of New York taxis and cause a traffic jam and stuff. Obviously, it was done with permission to film, but it was a brilliant sequence, such a fun sequence with the song Fame. Junior year, we get to see two other characters, Ralph and Doris, fall in love, and Montgomery being like the side sort of third wheel in that relationship with a lovely song called is it okay if i call you mine at which you get to see a lovely sequence of you know the cityscape and then you see him in this little window it zooms over into him and it just goes straight in with this lovely red flashing light that you're focusing on the entire time it's beautifully shot in that respect and we also get to see the rocky horror picture show which i might have mentioned on the 70s episode as well where ralph and doris go to a screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is mentioned a little bit earlier as well, and a little integration of what actual New York performing arts students and people in New York would do for midnight screenings and stuff like that. Uh, and then senior year, we get to see Ralph get his big gig, Leroy's doing well, and Coco, there's a dark, very dark moment, which she gets fooled into by some con man who makes an amateur porn film and tricks her into into doing this porn film and it's a very dark moment in the film like you get to the end of the film at senior year and you think this is dark like we have themes of suicide dark pornography uh, discussions of homosexuality you got lots of it and then in the middle of it you got performing arts students like can they hack being in the business can they not that's what i think you've got the lot and i think that in this film it's such a collection it's a coming of age tale it's a musical so many songs obviously fame is a great one out here on my own also sung by irene cara with bruno martelli the music student they kind of have a little moment together in this little empty auditorium it's really beautiful like simply shot but a really cool song at the end of the day as well really nice slow and then there's red light which is part of the sound the deeper soundtrack so by linda clifford which is played as part of another sequence as well but also mainly for the audition sequence with Leroy and his <laughs> funny dance partner who isn't exactly the best dancer ever but you know we'll let her off because it was good comedy value but so many different parts of this film a deep textured look at New York City performing arts students and what it takes to be famous and what people will do to be famous and then we kind of end on this weird happy ending with a song called I Sing the Body Electric. The kids are graduating from the school. They've learnt their lessons. They've gone through the ringer. But at the end of the day, they're still performers. They, they're they suffering with troubles at home. Their own personal problems. Worrying about what they're going to do in life. Are they, is the career path they've chosen right for them? And ultimately, fame its an honest portrait of all those things combined. So that is why fame is my number one pick, really, for the 1980s. Because it's a dramatic, gritty piece with music involved and music involved in a less like it's an mgm film at the end of the day but at the same time you get this i don't know it's a serious musical which you don't often get because the likes of greece or singing in the rain you know all the classic musicals there's lots of happiness in them and it's all rosy by the end of the film whereas this you're kind of thinking it's not quite as rosy as it seems 
and you think, you know, there's always a darker underbelly to things. There's, you know, Alan Parker managed to create the perfect dark and edgy yet optimistic and coming of age based musical Re real locations no studio backlots or sound stages or anything like that all on location bit like inspiration from the naked city everything was on location so yeah number one pick fame and that's all i've got to say really on my episode for the 1980s I will just give you a quick recap of the ones that I've just been through now. So in at number five, I've got Cinema Paradiso, directed by Giuseppe Tornetto, released in 1988. At number four, we have Back to the Future, 1985, Robert Zemeckis. Number three, Aliens, 1986, directed by James Cameron. Number two, The Elephant Man, David Lynch's 1980 film. And finally, Fame, the 1980 Alan Parker dark gritty musical. Thank you very much, guys, for listening. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. And that's a wrap on Take 97, the 1980s edition of the podcast. And I look forward to seeing you next time for some action from the 1990s. See you later, guys.